You are going to die someday. That's what my favorite Twitter account says every day. I think we've got a picture of it. It's the daily death reminder. And this is all that it tweets out every day. So July 12th, July 11th, July 10th, you will die someday. It's actually the most helpful Twitter account I follow because number one, it makes me realize if I'm going to die someday, I need to X out of social media, quit wasting away my life, (laughs) a social media. But we need to be regularly reminded of our mortality that we might live for what matters most in our short span of life. James tells us that life is a mist and we feel it, don't we? Our lives will fly by. And so as much as it hurts and as painful as it can be, we need to remind ourselves we will die someday. Our lives will fly by. And when we die, some people will gather. Some people will cry. Many will just go eat Tex-Mex and move on with their lives. (laughs) Your job will be replaced. Your favorite chair will be filled by another. Your kids will fight over your stuff. Welcome to Southside Baptist Church. Here's how Ecclesiastes put it, chapter 111. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. And today, many pastors, many professors, many Christians are concerned with the state of the church in America. It's really nothing new, but the concern has just increased. You just look around and you see a church that is compromised, a church that is weak, a church that is impotent, a church that is worldly, that is too attached to the things of this world. And I think there are a lot of reasons why the church in America is in the state it is. I think two of them, one ours, we, we stop talking about sin from the pulpit. We don't want to offend anybody. But here, listen, if we don't talk about sin, what's the point? Why did Jesus Christ come? But also I think that we, we don't talk about death. And it hasn't always been the case. I've got about 20 books in my library about the art of dying well. The church used to have handbooks in Latin, ars moriendi, the art of dying. In many ways, pastors used to view their main job as helping their people finish well, helping their people die well. So this morning, we're going to be countercultural. It's going to be a hard part, especially the first half. And we're going to speak directly into the mic. And we're not being pessimistic. We're just being realistic. And we're going to talk about death. I've been tremendously helped this morning in this sermon by a book. It's not the easiest read, but it's not super long. If you want to read it, it's called Remember Death. It's by a guy named Matthew McCulloch. And it's on death awareness and how the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, really won't be relished and and cherished and proclaimed until we grapple with our own mortality. So we're in Roma still. Last week, our pastoral intern did a fantastic job, didn't he? Walking us through Romans 6. He walked us through 6, 15 to 23. And I want us to read uh, verse 23 again. Romans 6, 23. Hopefully many of you know it by heart. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So just two points from this passage this morning. Number one, sin brings death. Number two, Jesus brings life. So number one, sin brings death. It's right there. The wages of sin is death. We're all sinners, everyone, 
Therefore, we all die. In fact, if you got Romans open, look at chapter 5. We saw this in verse 12. We have the explanation of where death came from. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, talking about Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sins. The wages of sin is death. Death is universal in our world because sin is universal in our world. The only certainties, right? Taxes and death. 10 out of 10 die. It's the great equalizer. It's the great leveler. As one Puritan pastor put it, against this arrest, there is no bail. Here's how Spurgeon put it. Here is the history of the grass. Sown, grown, blown, mown, gone. And the history of man is not much more. Augustine said that we live a dying life. Or maybe some prefer a living death. Every birthday is one last year. Every beating pulse decreases the total number we're given. 2 Corinthians 4 says, outwardly, we are wasting away. Life is a savings account in reverse. Daily depletion. Everything we have will one day be lost. It really is terrible. And I want us to feel that this morning. Too often we want to stay happy and clappy, but we need to lament at times. And death is a tragedy. I love Facebook memories or the Time Hop app where you can view, you know, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years ago. And they're sweet memories, but you know what they also are? They're mementos of what I have lost. They're mementos of things I will never see or never experience again. And they're adding up. Death is hard. To age is to lose. As we continue to age, we lose more and more. In his novel, Everyman, Philip Roth says that old age is not so much a battle, it's a massacre. Just lose and lose and lose and lose. Death is this siphoning process. It's not really a one-time event, it's a lifelong process. So Job 18 calls death the king of terrors. And it doesn't matter how healthy we are, right? We should know that. Consumers of cabbage and kale will meet the same fate as those who eat red meat and ice cream. (laughs) You've probably all heard of the, the Atkins diet, right? Really popular at one point, mostly forgotten by now. Well, it was named after Robert Atkins, famous nutritionist and cardiologist, and so influential that Time Magazine named him one of the top 10 most influential people in 2002. Did you know in 2002 he had a heart attack? And he died in 2003. Now known as a fad diet. Doesn't matter how healthy we are. We'll lose family. Your work will largely be forgotten. McCulloch in his book tells the story of a heroic civic leader known throughout the city for how much good he had done over his lifetime. He began to age and had to let go of his job, but he still wanted to work, and so he ended up working in a shoe store. Went from leading a business, CEO and entrepreneur, to getting size seven for teenage girls. Then he gets sick and he dies, and he has this, before he's dying, though, he has this wall, this plaque next to his bed of all his achievements and certificates and plaques. And he tells a story that just two weeks after he passed away, he said, okay, what are we going to do with these plaques? And they donate them to an amateur woodworker. Life's work, forgotten and torn up in two weeks. See, even the greatest of legacies is soon forgotten, right? I've mentioned before, most of us don't even know the names of our great-grandparents. 
When's the last time you thought of your great-great-grandma? Mostly forgotten by our own descendants in two generations. All the wealth you accumulate, all the stuff you accumulate is just going to be gone. It's going to be used to turn your kids against one another. I see it all the time. We spend our lives trying to attain more and for what? Temporary satisfaction. It never lasts. The new always wears off. We know that, right? John D. Rockefeller, one of the wealthiest men that we've seen, was asked, how much is enough? And he said, just a little more. And did you know that that's always the answer? Always the answer. Just a little more. But in the end, everyone loses everything. Someone asked Rockefeller's assistant, how much did he leave behind? And she said, every bit of it. The more we have, the more we have to lose. Regardless of how high we fly, we will come down. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sins. The wages of sin is death. The picture is bleak and we need to stare at it because if death's no big deal, then Jesus Christ is no big deal. We need to be regularly reminded of our mortality that we might live for what matters most in our short span. Until we grapple with death and we grapple with its harsh reality, the promises of life through Jesus remain irrelevant and detached from everyday life. And so we need to talk about it and we need to think about it. But American culture has sought to remove it from public discourse. We don't talk about it. We avoid it. We fight it. We hide it. As if pretending it doesn't exist will actually fend us from it. You know, it's like kids. If they think there's a monster in the room, what do they do? Pull the cover over their head. As if there were, if there were really monsters, and they're not. But if there were, that two inches of cotton would actually protect them. Or I hear that ostriches will bury their head in the sand if they're being hunted. Because if they can't see it, it must not be real. How dumb, right? But don't we do the same thing when it comes to death? Like Louis the 15th of France, he refused to let any of his advisors speak of death in his presence. Couldn't even utter the word. And you know what? He still died. Anyway, in this book, McCulloch lays out four ways that our culture seeks to deny the reality of death. Number one, talks about where we die. Death has moved from the home in our culture to the hospital. Just as recent as 1945, most deaths occurred in the home. It was the norm. Families would take in their loved ones that were aging, and they would take care of their dying loved ones. And so people were exposed to death regularly. There was no isolating children from the cruel realities of death. But now dying's been taken out of the home. It's been taken out of community. Now we, we sneak dead bodies away. We've got secret back doors in hospitals and nursing homes where we can try to hide the evidence. No longer in a bedroom with the family around. Now nursing home and intense care units with strangers in the room with sanitized smells and rhythmic beeps. So where we die has changed the way we view death. Second thing he mentions is how we fight death. Now we can fight death with sophisticated medical technology and praise God for common grace. Medical technology has been a huge blessing to society. In the late 1600s, the average couple gave birth to nine children. But three of the nine, on average, would not live past 21 years of age. One-third wouldn't make it 
Cotton Mather was a very influential New England minister. His wife gave birth to 14 children, and they buried 13 of them. It was just the norm. Death was present. It was an expectation. If a fever broke out, you weren't irritated because you had to make a Walgreens run. You didn't know if you would live. Times have changed, and for the better. But here's the problem. It has caused us not to have to grapple with our mortality like they did in previous generations. Infant death is way down, praise the Lord. No epidemics, at least for now, like smallpox, yellow fever. We're shocked when someone dies from influenza. We live longer, again, in the late 1700s, not that long ago. Life expectancy was in the late 30s. Now it's almost 80. So we live longer, we live with more comfort, praise God. Pain medication, epidurals, surgeries from anything from cancerous tumors to herniated discs to less than 20-20 vision. But again, a side effect from all of our sophistication is that when a person is dying, there's always something more to do. Always. More that can be done. Deny it, fight it, delay it, postpone it, pay for it. Always another surgery, another medicine, some new experimental procedure, a second opinion, a third specialist. And now many doctors view death as defeat. And so they're happy and the many families don't ever want to let go. And so they continue to try something new. The famous Hindu physician, Atul Gawande, he's got a book called Being Mortal. And he writes this, he says, our every impulse is to fight, to die with chemo in our veins or a tube in our throats or fresh sutures in our flesh. The fact that we may be shortening or worsening the time we have left hardly seems to register. We imagine that we can wait until the doctors tell us there's nothing more they can do, but rarely is there nothing more that doctors can do. They can give toxic drugs of unknown efficacy, operate to try to remove part of the tumor, put in a feeding tube if a person can't eat. There's always something, end quote. And Gawande points out that Medicare spends one-fourth of its money on the 5% of patients in their final year of life. Most of that within the last couple of months when it's really pointless. We deny it and we fight it and we have the technology to deceive us into thinking that we can. Just a couple of weeks ago, USA Today had this article about the new uh, most rigorous form, most aggressive form of life support. It's a machine called ECMO. And what it will do is it will actually take the blood out of a person and run it through the ECMO machine and oxygenate it and then bring it back into the body. It's incredible technology. You can have a person stay alive for days or months when their heart or their lungs no longer work because of this machine. One patient paid $4.2 million for two months on this machine. And so it's a multi-million dollar way to cheat death until a clot forms, which inevitably it happens. And so we deceive ourselves and the technology we have now deceives us, but we've got to know we can't cheat death. We may be able to postpone it, but it will come and it'll become Romans 6, 23, because of sin. The wages of sin is death. We don't die due to a deficiency in medical technology. We die because we are sinners. Third reason, third way we fight death is how we handle death. The modern-day funeral industry is just that, an industry. For a pretty penny, you can buy the most comfortable clothes for your deceased loved one. 
Many of you will know about her satirical book, The American Way of Death, and in it, Jessica Mitford talks about various ways that we treat the dead as though they're living. And she speaks of a company called the Practical Burial Footwear Company in Ohio. Here's how they describe one of their products. This shoe reflects character and station in life. It's superb in styling and provides a formal reflection of successful living. I don't know about you, but when I've been to funerals, I've never even seen the shoes. But here you pay to ensure comfort out of consideration for the deceased. In other words, we pretend like they are alive rather than dead. It's the same with caskets. All sorts of externals, all sorts of internal options. Listen, just put me in a pine box. I miss the days when there were graveyards next to churches. It's the way they used to be the norm. There's just something sobering about walking through the graveyard of our deceased saints as we come together to worship the Lord. But now, man, most cemeteries are for profits. There's one in Los Angeles that has probably the most expensive lots one can get because of the quality of the view. Again, we treat the dead as if they're alive. We refuse to acknowledge the fact that it doesn't matter. You can cushion the feet. You can buy a designer suit. You can get the most durable caskets, line it with velvet, give them the best view. It does not matter. Fourth way we deny death as a culture is how we speak of death. In other words, we don't. We don't. Death is the great unmentionable. And when we're forced to, we change the vocabulary to make it feel better. So we don't even talk about dying. We talk about passing away. We no longer have funerals. We have celebrations of life. Elmwood, it's no longer a graveyard. It's now Elmwood Memorial Park. It's no longer a death certificate. It's a vital statistics form. No longer an undertaker. It's a funeral director. We're not buried. We're interred. The wages of sin is death. Death is a result of sin. Death is God's judgment on sinful humanity. I don't care what the death certificate says. No one dies of natural causes. Death is not natural. People will say that oftentimes. As you already know, it's one of my pet peeves. And I think we say it to grieve ones to try to come. It's okay. It's a natural part of life. But that's really not that helpful, is it? Like if you get robbed and you call the police... I'm being robbed. And they say, well, you know what? There's been a lot of those in your neighborhood lately. It's quite normal. Have a good day. (laughs) It's not helpful, right? You're in the plane and pilot comes on. Ladies and gentlemen, good news is the weather's great. Bad news is our engines are out. Fret not. It's a normal pattern with planes of this make and model. And after this many years of operation, enjoy the descent. 10-4 not helpful to be told it's normal those of you who have loved ones that you have lost know that it's not helpful to be told it's normal it's not helpful and it's not true death is terrible it's an enemy the bible says death is God's judgment on sin starting way back in the garden of Eden God told Adam and Eve you can eat of any tree in this garden just don't eat of that one or you will surely die And what do they do? They disobey their king. From dust you came, God says, to dust you will return. Sin brings death. Point number one. Number two, Jesus brings life. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Sociologist Peter Berger says this about the purpose of religion. He's speaking of any religion. Here's what he says. The power of religion depends in the last resort upon the credibility of the banners it puts in the hands of men and women as they stand before death or more accurately as they walk inevitably toward it. And I would contend, friends, that the banners that Christianity provides for the hands of its inheritance is the only hope against the despair of death. You see, resurrection, the overcoming of death for all who are in Christ is unique to Christianity. We don't worship a man who was just wise and gave us some wise ways to live our lives and then died. We worship a God man who was wise, who predicted that he would die and rise and then he died and he rose. Death no longer has a hold on him and glory of glories, death no longer has a hold of us if we trust in him. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not die. This is the whole point. The hope of the Christian faith is resurrection from the dead. For believers in Jesus, death is not a period. Death is just a comma. For us, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, we can mock it. Where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your Sting, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We earn death, the wages of sin. It's what we earn because of our sin, and sin is an honest employer. But the free gift of God is eternal life. We merit death, we receive eternal life through faith. Death is a merited wage, but eternal life is undeserved. And eternal life is just life beyond the reach of death. We gain life through Jesus. We will be resurrected because he was resurrected. The Bible calls him the first fruits. Much more is coming. He's the firstborn from the dead. This is why the New Testament refers to the death of believers, not as death, but as sleep. We don't die, we go to sleep because there's going to be an awakening on the other side of the sleep. It's where the word cemetery actually comes from. It's from a Greek word, komateria, which just means sleeping places. Death doesn't have the last word for Christians. We don't have to fear it. In fact, listen to one of my favorite passages, Hebrews 2. Talks about why, did, why Jesus became a man. Why Christmas? What's the point of Christmas? Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood. The son became a man. Here's the purpose. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We've been freed from the fear of death because of the death of Jesus on our behalf. Sin brings death, Jesus brings life. Let me close with just two applications. Number one, consider death. Reflect on death. Meditate on death. Here's how the psalmist puts it. Oh Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. I wonder if you ever pray prayers like that. 
When Jonathan Edwards was 17 years old, he said this. He wrote several resolutions. Here's one of them. Resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. He also committed to to meditate on heaven for 20 minutes a day. I wonder how different would our lives be if we woke up. First thing we did. Hopefully you're not looking at your phone. Hopefully it's in the other room. You wake up and you think, all right. I have breath today. My name is written in the book of life. My sins are forgiven. My conscience is clean. My standing with the Lord is right because of Jesus Christ. This may be my last day. How am I going to live it for him? How am I going to honor him today? This day is his. I might get another one tomorrow. I might not. But today I'm going to do all that I do. For the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Contemplate death. Ecclesiastes 7.2 says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to hearts. I wonder, do you believe that verse? It is better to go to a funeral than to a party. Better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Because that's where we're all headed and we should take it to heart. This is why I enjoy funerals. I even enjoy being in cemeteries or memorial parks. It just gives an opportunity to take stock. You walk around and you read names and you see these two dates and that little dash in between them. We should use the reality of death as an opportunity to measure our lives and gain perspective. What kind of life am I living? What am I living for? Are you living mostly for things that will not matter five minutes after you die? Or are you living for things that will matter for eternity? What kind of person will you be with your mist? How will you use your vapor? Will you fret over that stain? Will you bark at a kid over that spill? Waste away hours online looking at the loved ones of others on a screen or will you spend time with your own? Will you waste money on that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Will you pretend to be able to pull a U-Haul behind your hearse? Watch hours and hours of television. Be consumed with sports. Or will you say no to the trivial that you might say yes to the ultimate? Contemplate death. It'll change the way you live. It'll change your priorities. You won't read fluffy Christian books. You'll let go of grudges. You'll grant forgiveness. You'll share the gospel. You'll make disciples. You'll make some phone calls. You'll live generously. You'll live the life you have with gratitude. And on that day, you know what you won't say? You won't say, man, I wish I'd spent more time on myself. Man, I should have spent more time at the office. Man, I should have spent more time binging episodes on Netflix. You won't wish you had delayed repentance. You won't wish you had put off ministry. You won't wish you had neglected discipleship. You won't wish you had been marginally committed to the body of Christ. Parents, 
Your children will never prioritize that which you marginalize. See, only by taking death to heart are you ready for a life worth living. Here's how Luther put it. We should familiarize ourselves with death during our lifetime, inviting death into our presence when it's still at a distance and not on the move. See, we're helped to live by remembering death. Psalm 90, Moses prays, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So that's the first application. Consider death and consider death regularly. Second application, live your life in light of death. Friend, maybe you're here and you don't know the Lord. I wonder, have you grappled with your own mortality? Leo Tolstoy in his confession, he wrote this. My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide was the simplest of questions. Lying in the soul of every man. A question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? Have you asked these questions? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? See, Jesus is the only one who holds the keys to death. You can trust in Christ. Your sin has earned you death. Graveyards are filling up. You can trust Christ. Wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you do know the Lord, let me just encourage you to get serious. Life is a miss. Prioritize your life around that which matters most. Don't merely live for the here and now, but for the there and then. Focus on eternity. Plan your life. It's amazing. We'll, plan, we'll, we'll spend six months planning for a two-week vacation. But we won't spend 10 minutes planning for a never-ending life after death. We can be so short-sighted. Against Virgin says, He who does not prepare for death is more than an ordinary fool. He's a madman. Just think about eternity. We might get 90 years here. And then eternity begins. This life is about preparing for eternity. Make your last works your best. Live so that when you come to die, that's all you've got to do is die. As best you can, live so that you can die without regrets. We can prepare to die. By dying every day. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. I die every day. We die to self and our agenda every day. No one finds it hard to die who dies every day. We've had plenty of practice. Jesus says, he who loses his life will find it. And pursue the Lord. Pursue relationship with the Lord. And when you do that, death no longer is loss. In fact, Paul says in Philippians 1, death is gain. Philippians 1.20, Paul says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored, exalted, magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says later, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. That is far better. I wonder, is that true this morning? Can you say death is gain? 
For the one who loves the Lord, death is gain because you get to be with him. Death's not the end. Death is the gate of endless joy. The best is yet to come. It's always true for the believer. Your best life is not now. Your best life now is only true for those who are going to hell. Our best life is yet to come. It's later. We're going to be with the Lord. We're no longer going to battle sin. We've seen in Romans that Jesus has freed us from the penalty of sin. He's freed us from the power of sin. And when we die or if he comes back, whichever comes first, we'll be freed from the presence of sin. We will no longer battle. Our loves will be no longer disordered. Death will be the funeral of our battle with sin. And so we can die and we can die with dignity and we can even die with joy because we see it as gain. Again, Spurgeon, the Christian who contemplates death with the joy is a living sermon. And some of you have seen it. The Psalms say, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints. It doesn't get much more precious than someone who's excited to be home. What a witness we can be. We can be a witness by talking about death and we can be a witness by dying well. Just consider a few examples. There was once an old Welsh lady. She was dying and her minister came and visited her and he asked her, sister, are you sinking? And she lifted herself up and she said, sinking? Sinking? Did you ever know a sinner to sink through a rock? If I had been standing on the sand, I might sink, but thank God I'm on the rock of ages and there is no sinking there. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was going to his execution and he told his friend, this is the end, but for me, it's the beginning of life. Or the two martyrs that were burned at the stake for their faith, one was lame and the other blind. And as the fire was lit, the lame man yelled to the blind man, courage, brother, this fire will cure us both. <laughs> the Puritan pastor, Richard Baxter, was dying and they asked him, how are you doing, pastor? And he said, almost well. See, death is the best prescription for suffering saints. Healed forever. D.A. Carson likes to say, I'm not suffering from anything a good resurrection can't fix. Toward the end of his life, American evangelist Dwight Moody said, one day you're going to hear that I'm dead. Don't believe it. I will then be as alive as never before. But it's so much more than new bodies. It's Philippians 1. It's presence with our king. It's to be with the Lord, unhindered. I've shared the story of Johnny Erickson Tata before. It's worth sharing again. Johnny was crippled at 18 from a diving accident. She's in her 70s now, so she's been a quadriplegic her whole life. And she was at once asked, Johnny, when you get a resurrection body, you get those resurrection legs, what's the first thing you're going to do with those resurrection legs? And she says, I'm going to bow to my resurrected knees. And I'm going to praise my king for saving my soul. Heidelberg Catechism, question one. What's your only comfort in life and in death? That I'm not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. 
He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not to say we take death lightly by any means. The Bible calls it an enemy. It is an enemy, but it is a defeated enemy. It's called the last enemy, and its defeat is sure. It's not to say that we don't grieve. Jesus grieved. Jesus grieved over the death of Lazarus, even though he knew he was about to bring him back in short order. So we grieve but we grieve differently. First Thessalonians 4 talks about the fact that we grieve, but we don't grieve as those who do not have hope. Our grieving is different. Yes, we grieve, but we grieve with hope. Yes, we weep, but we weep as those who know how the story ends. It doesn't. 